Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. It started out as you stored people's stuff. Explain how Omni has evolved, how Omni is evolving right now. So I think one of the things to really... You know, I'd love to, to drill home that I don't think I've talked about enough is that the very first deck of Omni was talking about what we've built towards today. The first deck had a whole page that was just like, storage is a Trojan horse. Right. It was like eight slides about the size of the storage market. All this stuff talking about this is a big opportunity. There's $26 billion of storage. One in five, uh, five people in, in, in America has a storage unit. All these things. And then literally I did a full switch up and it was just like, but this isn't even the business. This is the supply side of a marketplace connecting people, things, opportunities, optionalities, all these different things. And, and really, we want to power, power access. And so, you know, where we're at today is we've, I think we've finally shipped the first part of that feeling, mm-hmm. the first true actual representation of you can now store something in Omni. You can now rent it to a friend or a stranger. People now have access to things that they never would. You can try before you buy. You can test stuff out. And you're seeing liquidity from things that would have either been trapped under a closet, like under a bunch of stuff in a closet, hung up on your wall as fake art in, a, in, an, in an existing storage unit scenario or you know, in your mom's basement somewhere. Suddenly a bike that you paid $300 for and you use twice a year, you're now getting 15 20 bucks for that every month. You're getting liquidity out of, of, of earned items. And... and that's where we're at now, and we have so much coming down the pipe that's going to double down on all those dreams and visions that we're putting out. Ryan's out, the new COO. Yes. Elaborate on that vision. What, what, what's upcoming? Yeah, I think what you'll see, the stuff that we'll be executing on in 2018 and for the next few years, rentals, as Tom said, is kind of the first piece of this puzzle. And I think it was the first piece where we were able to really demonstrate how this vision for a connected sort of operating system for things can create a ton of value for people. And, you know, we're going to take that and really build on it. So the goal is to basically, you know, rentals is just one component of this. And there's obvious things like, oh, people should be able to sell their things to each other that we'll do. But when you think about how how an operating system for things should actually run, the, the ability to integrate third parties, the ability uh, to do lots of magic on organizing items, suggesting items, all those types of things, that's sort of where you'll see us moving in the next call it uh, one to three years, as well as expanding significantly geographically. That's obviously right now we're in the Bay Area. And the goal is really to, you know, I think there's very, very strong network effects that we've seen. And so once we start to bring on more nodes onto the network in new cities, there's all sorts of interesting things you can do about managing inventory across cities, bringing inventory that has the highest demand in a given market to that market. So maybe you have, you know, skis uh, in San Francisco that aren't moving that much, but in Denver, you move them to Denver or you move them to the Tahoe market and they move all the time. And so you actually make a ton of money because Omni is able to balance that inventory for you. So a lot of cool stuff like that that'll be coming down the pipeline. Um, but really it's building out towards this vision of a true operating system for things. Someone from Stripe tweeted out today how their wife was making like a ton of money on, on Omni. On the, I don't remember what she was renting out, but yeah. she was buying stuff on Amazon, renting it out on Omni. Yeah, I mean... I think one of the interesting things, there's like multiple ways to come at the system. We, I probably have a list of a hundred different things I want to see people do. We'll, we'll end up giving those out. Like we'll give out these ideas because I think over time Omni becomes this platform for entrepreneurship. I think, I think similar to the way the app store created, you know, a million new entrepreneurs. I, I hope 
over time, if we build out platform and access, you start to think about how do you build on top of what we've created uh, to, to create little small businesses on it. And, you know, I don't know exactly who that was. I remember seeing that tweet. Yeah. But what she's basically doing is she's found an arbitrage opportunity, right. which is one of the, the, the best things. If you, if you want to say you're a marketplace, usually marketplaces have some degree of ARB. It's yeah. something that people can look That's at. How Teespring got so big. That's how Teespring, yeah. you start seeing these things, right? And what she's figuring out is the loose understanding that I have there is she's starting to see deltas mm-hmm. on sort of prices in Amazon uh, that are differentiated from the perception of value on a daily yeah. use. So maybe it's a $100 item that would rent easily for 15 to 25 bucks a day because the one-time use has a high value. But she's seeing an ARB opportunity where it's 60 to $80. So now she's looking at, oh, four rentals pays this off, five right. rentals unprofitable. So she's starting to look at these different opportunities, and you don't even have to have a pickup. Yep. If you're doing that deal, you have it sent right to Omni. So there's this whole world where all these new little interesting businesses come out. One we always talk about is just like buying a snowboard in the summer. Right. If it only costs you three bucks to store a snowboard in Omni, but you're seeing a 40% discount if you're buying a snowboard in June. So a $600 snowboard, you know, you're seeing, you know, you're getting it for 480 bucks. It costs you 12 bucks to store it before someone buys it. And you're getting an opportunity to go 10 to 15% up on top of it. Mm -hmm. There's a world in which those types of things are constant. That's not our core business. Our core business isn't like, ah, find sneaky deals in the system. But the fact that we give that, that network opportunity for, for creative sales distribution, access and network-based market, uh, marketplace behavior, excites me because I think people are going to come up with things that I've never even thought about at all. So you guys are building this marketplace from scratch, yeah. both yeah. supply and the demand. There are, if, if this is such an obvious idea, it sort of it sounds intuitive, there are people who already have different, like why aren't incumbents, whether it's, I don't know, people who own inventory or people who own, why, why aren't people who have much bigger advantages than you already doing I think advantage is a relative term mm-hmm. is one thing, right? So in terms um, of people who own, own inventory already, and sure, maybe. but but their advantage is that they have that, but their disadvantage is, is the always the, uh, the 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 mouse elephant problem, right, right. right? Which is we can move very quickly. Yeah, uh, we can innovate a supply chain because our supply chain is is you know four warehouses, right? Yeah. Their supply chain is a thousand warehouses, a uh, hundred thousand employees. Yeah, yeah. When you start saying, oh, cool, now we're going to suddenly start picking up people's things and distributing it, yeah. data mining every single one. That's a pretty hard process right. uh, to retrofit onto a working thing. That's not in any way saying that that can't be done. But I, I, my general opinion is, you know, that if you were running that company and you're saying, oh, cool, we've been growing 10 to 15% year over year right. for 40 years or 15, 20 years, you're probably going to double down on that because you're now a large publicly traded company yeah. or you're a large private company company that does something really well and you're 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 you know you're content with what you're seeing there for us our advantage is we are building it from scratch like right. our disadvantage and our advantage is actually contained in the same phrase and for us it means when we're looking at when a problem arises in omni we actually get the luxury of saying what at this moment what is the best way to solve this problem that lasts the longest and creates the most long-term efficiency Versus saying, what's the, you know, what's the way to fix this that fits into this massive pre-existing network? We don't have a massive pre-existing network. We're building mm-hmm. every node, every single data point, and every, like, the mesh of thought is moving at the same time for everything else. And so being able to think through things with a long view on a big swing gives us the, you know, what I think is an advantage and also why people aren't jumping into it. Because right. it's, it's also hard. If you want to dig into specifics... There's three things that I think if you're an incumbent or a competitor that you're looking at and they give us a unique advantage. And all three of these things are the reason why we started with the storage business first. 
So one, you have to be able to do say bay logistics. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't work if you want to, if you decide you need a, you know, paddleboard or you want a, you need a space heater because it just got really cold. If you have to wait four days to deliver it, it's not, not going to work. Reaction time. Yeah. You got to be, you got to be able to get it same day. Second piece is you have to be able to do itemized inventory management. So there's tons of people that have, you know, like public storage has, you know, millions and millions of items in all these storage units, but they have no idea what's in them. They don't have nice photography of the items. They don't understand the weight, the length, width, size, any of those things. And then the third piece is you have to be able to handle ins and outs. So there's lots of people that are really good at doing like last mile delivery and they can do super efficient ways to get items delivered to you. But you have to have an entirely different set of expertise to be able to pick up an item and re-inbound and process that item. And so when you think about someone like, you know, it's Amazon or Postmates or Instacart, like there's very, very, very few times that they're actually inbounding a return. And in Amazon's case, they literally don't even handle the return to the Prime Now Center. Those actually go to the, the regional fulfillment center. Right. And so when you think about those three things, that's where we look at our key advantage. And all three of those things we were able to essentially build out in the storage business and make a key part of the storage business, knowing that those were necessary for us to scale the marketplace. And so it allowed us to develop a lot of operational efficiency and sort of, uh, you know, become, I think, the best in the world at some of this stuff. And then we're able to use that to create a competitive advantage on the marketplace. If we talk about incumbents, there are other startups in the space, you know, MakeSpace, Clutter, you know, Michael Powell's startup. There are a few other, a few others, people listening to this might be wanting to start something. If you were, let's say, Clutter and MakeSpace, probably the biggest ones besides you guys, or in addition to you guys, what would be the most generous interpret? Like if, if the CEO of Clutter was sitting right here, what might he say? It would be like the counter to that. Like what's the most generous interpretation of what his response might be? I would question if they would even see us as... As, as direct yeah. competitors at we don't, this point. We don't even think about it. The honest answer is we're not really paying that much attention to them in a direct competition way. I would think it's naive if we said we weren't. And say more, because for people who don't know, because they're focused mostly on public storage and you're focused mostly on yeah, share, I mean, I think, sharing between. I'd say we probably, I don't, I, you know, this is a, a loose data, but I'd say we're probably 10 to 15% of our users would be having a direct mental thing right. where they're like, I was going to choose Clutter, I was going to choose MakeSpace, or I was going to choose Omni. I think we serve, we tend to serve different needs. Right. Even the core thesis of why it was built, it kind of right. came out. When I was looking at starting this company, I was dealing with a closet space issue. It wasn't something that was going to be tackled well by public storage or should be innovated by yes. public storage. It was, you know, I live in a city, I live in 350 square feet with a wife, and, you know, we're trying to, to, to live... <laughs> And every now and then you get something, you get a wetsuit and a boogie board because suddenly I was going to be a surfer. Ryan Graves would say, I'm definitely not a surfer. <laughs> um, uh, a bunch of times we try to do these different things. And uh, the, the, the differentiator between sort of storage as it existed and continues to exist is the movement. We, we focus on things that you actually want to continue to use. We think of ourselves as this closet extension. It's this similar way a Dropbox folder sits on your hard drive and over time it can give you more space by moving stuff up into the cloud and getting rid of it. But when you need it back, you pull it back. It's not a zip drive. You know, they're sort of focusing on, they're building zip drives where it's like, here's this little piece of side data that you take away and you store it and you have all your stuff protected and there will be a time when you need that back. Go to it, bring out the drive, stick it on the side of the laptop, get it out. We're, we're moving in and out of your life daily. I expect you to say, cool, you know, there's a world in which in the future you're a guy with a bunch of sneakers and you say, you know what, it's Tuesday, bring back those Jordans. And, you know, on Wednesday you're like, bring back those those LeBrons. Like you're switching through, bring the Yeezys on Thursday. Yep. Because we, we should be seamlessly moving and so efficient that you now can live in, you know, every major urban market on the planet and comfortably, happily 
have less stuff in your space, have a more mm-hmm. zen-style interaction with your human behavior and your network and your friends, while also having access to the things you need when you do need them. Rent. Oh, I saw this tweet the other day. It was like, millennials walking around like they rent the place. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's yeah, pretty accurate. Yeah. In this world where you, where you rent instead of, instead of own, what does is, what is housing look like? I think a lot of the problems with this, like just in general, and this is, this is, I don't know where I fall on the millennial spectrum. I think I'm on that. They had this new one. Where it's like you're born between like 81 and 85. You're a millennial, but you're like a some some thing. What is that? I'm just saying you're like a Star Wars millennial. That's yeah. what they say. Were you born after Star Wars or before? Like, did you grow up with a cell phone or did you not? Like, I remember receiving my first cell phone. Did you care about getting a driver's license? Getting a driver's license meant everything to me. A lot of millennials never even you know, dealt with. But there's always different things, right? And yeah. one of the things is people are putting these big broad statements yep. on millennial behavior while millennials are still figuring out millennial behavior. And so I'm not sold on the idea that millennials will never buy homes or what housing will look like forever in the future. I think we're pushing, I think you're seeing a focus on experience. There'll probably be some degree of a regression to the mean, right? Where over time it's like, all right, we've done this for a long time. I'm interested in setting up roots. I'm thinking about long-term financial planning. And then those people become our supply side, right? right? The millennials who right now might be on the demand side, hey, I want to rent a drone. I want to do things. When those millennials are 42 and, you know, living in Burlingame and they're interested in getting more space in their home because they have a kid and things have changed, suddenly they become, cool, I'm going to use Omni for the other side. I've got some great stuff. I'd I'd love if people could experience it. And I just think that's one of the things. And over time, the behavior changes. But I think we're going to continue to see urban density pushing forward and certainly for for younger people coming out of uh, high school, college, early workforce, figuring out where's the culture, where's the opportunity. And it's still going to be in cities and we're going to help power a lot of that exchange. One of the last episodes I did was consumer social startups. And one of the questions I was asking everybody is, you know, how do you build a consumer social startup today when, when Facebook is around and, and building everything? And, mm. and I guess similar in logistics, how do you guys think about, you know, Amazon or Uber? So I think Amazon is one of the most incredible companies uh, that's ever been built. I think the way that they have just relentlessly pursued constantly what's next and doing like it's just, you know, Bezos has the saying of it's day one. I think that's, right. I can look at their financial statements and figure out that they, they feel that way. So are they um, going to one day do what you're doing right now? Well, I think it's interesting, right? Because they, Amazon is one of those companies that's completely focused on making it as easy as possible for you to buy as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And Omni is is kind of the antithesis to that. Like when you think about rentals, rentals is about maximizing the number of people that can utilize a single item and the number of different use cases and different times that item can be used. And so if you think about something like a surfboard or a, or a really nice road bike or any of these items that are used sporadically throughout a year, a single item could serve, could 100% serve the needs of 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 people that may, you know, previously have gone to Amazon and buy, the, buy that item. So I think there's sort of a philosophical difference, uh, whereas Amazon's best interest is to launch Prime Now in every city, make it as easy as possible for us to keep buying more and more and more and more stuff. And the whole, like, sell your used things or sell things back to Amazon is kind of this, like, thing they do, but don't really focus a lot on. Whereas our whole sort of incentive structure is totally different. We're all about, hey, do we really need you know, 25,000 tents in San Francisco, or could you have 2,500 tents in San Francisco, have way less waste, way less consumer surplus, and have those 25 tents serve the needs of everyone and have every single person be able to just rent those tents when they need them. I, I think that the, the thing that I think the most about is getting to an oper- a level of operational efficiency that allows us to scale out me across the world and the just sheer difficulty of that. And that's what we spend a lot of our time internally on. Um, and we'll have a lot of news to announce soon on that front. But you know, I think that is where Amazon has spent so much time and resources and money over the past two decades, focusing on building out like to the point where the 
buying their own plane fleets and running their own internal logistics, that that's where I think, you know, we're going to be investing a lot of resources to be able to get what we need to do done as we scale to new cities. I also think one of the, you know, to, to, to almost compound on one of the things Delk said there is just like, all right, so you don't need 25,000 tents, you now need 2,500 tents. But what you'd actually like is those 2,500 tents to be better quality also, right? right? Yeah. You're no longer driving a bottom line of cheap, uh, replaceable, cheap labor building low-quality things because stuff becomes disposable, right. which is kind of the culture we're in right now. You're now you're now actually encouraged. If you are going to make a commitment to buying a tent, this should be a tent that can last multiple seasons, multiple people. This should be we should be getting higher quality things. Potentially, local matters more because now you're like, oh great, I'm buying from that guy I met. I went to the facility. I saw how how much time and care goes into everything they're building. So I think we also give like you know Omni starts to give you this this return to things that last a long time. I remember there was a craftsman. When I was growing up, my dad used to tell me like, oh, we get Craftsman tools because we get, there's a new one that comes out every year and that the Craftsman tools, you never buy them again. You buy them one time, you never buy them again, but you buy Craftsman because you never right. buy it again. That's awesome. And it's like, it's a true thing. And we, every year for Christmas, I'd get them what, they always had a new thing every year. One year it was a Sawzall, one year it was this like drill thing because he's like, I don't know what I'm going to need it, but I know it'll work when I get it. We're never going to have to buy another one because they last forever. And that was an amazing – that's an amazing brand thing to have. And when I see like a Craftsman drill come into Omni, I think, oh, that thing's going to rent for a long time yeah. because that brand power thought process still stays with me. I don't know enough about Craftsman now to know if that's still part of the – it's certainly part of the heritage if that's still part of the forward-looking thing. But I'd love to see that to start come back. You start to see things – people are buying things because they think now – you already think about the story. We've, we've seen that rise in, in culture. We've started to see in, in, in marketplace culture where people are now buying on the story. Who made this? Who wears this? Where's my money going? Blah, blah, blah. And now you're also going to start seeing, how long will this last? What's, the, what's, what's my guarantee on this? Where's, how's the quality? You're going to start checking mm-hmm. the seams. And, and you know, Omni can affect that, which means, again, better quality stuff, longer lasting, higher production values. And, and that's net, net good as far as I'm concerned. You know, one thing I'm curious about is when you, you know, to go back to Uber for a second, you think Uber and Lyft, you know, put a brand aside as an app in some ways are interchangeable, you know, oh, whichever one has a better price, I'll just go with that. And I'm curious if someone with an entrepreneur with a lot of money and a lot of resources were to say, hey, I love the Omnivision. I want to, I want to, you know, raise a bunch of money and take care of it now. What sort of lock-in do you guys have or sort of defensibility do you think about in terms of Omni the app and, and Omni the company? Sure. I'll, I'll jump on this. I'll let Doug do a follow-up. I mean, the, the the general piece there is it's hard. Right. So I think side one is literally, if you're that, first of all, you got to look at the type of entrepreneur. So you got a couple types of entrepreneurs. You got sort of the like, I'm a scrappy hustler. I'll do whatever it takes kind of grindy yeah. entrepreneur. I'll start from zero. I'm building a hundred, right? Real hip hop. Then you, the real hip hop entrepreneur, as, right. Eric, as Eric would say. Then you've got the sort of like the formula entrepreneur where it's like I identify a deficiency in a market I think that there is a, a lack of email circulation data and you I'm sound build... like Dave Chappelle's white man voice <laughs> <laughs> I might be Dave Chappelle's white man voice right. um, a little too real yeah, yeah. A little too, <laughs> right spot on there Derek. Yeah. Um, and so you're looking you know they're, they're looking yeah. to solve like a thing and they're going to build yeah. it and they're going to flip it and they're going to do another one because their business is their job and which one are you and there's a third yeah. And I would say the third is also is the fast follow, mm-hmm. which is like, this thing is working. I'm going to open the, the next one. Yep. Still, you're still an entrepreneur, no question about it. But, you know, you saw McDonald's work. Someone's got to open a yep. Burger King. There's always going to be a, another one in this space, right? I think I'm probably the zero to 100 scrappy hustler type because I like the ride so much. 
that the idea of like short shortcutting the ride would cheapen my thrill. But I think if you're looking at our competitors, they're not going to come out of pool two because Omni checks none of the boxes for a small flip. Mm -hmm. And if you're coming out of pool three, you're probably not looking at Omni either because you're like, oh, this is an unbelievably hard, high expense, high risk opportunity. And I have to raise so much money to catch them. Mm -hmm. I have to dilute so hard so fast. And I'm only getting a little bit of leg up by seeing what they've done so far. Because we've been pretty close. To, we've, we've played it pretty narrow right. on what we've released out to people, how we've staged things out. So I think our biggest competitor, if they do come up, will be a me-type person who figures out our blind spot. And my job right now is to close those blind spots and close those gaps yep. every single day of my life, every time we get up and figure that out. Because as much as I love other hustlers, scrappy entrepreneurs, like I want to beat them all. That's, what, that's, the, that's the connecting thread, I would say, that goes amongst every one of us. I think a lot of people are going to try this. I think this is definitely, you know, we, we have a strong conviction that the world is going to work this way. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of technology also that's that comes out of the next half decade, five years, that is going to make uh, this make even more sense. And what VR, like say more crypto, say more about that. Uh, you know, I think like Omni is such a logistics heavy company. Um, I'm going to keep this pretty high level, but, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of efficiencies in logistics that come in the next, you know, five years that are going to are going to make more and more things come to you and make you going to things seem more and more sort of uh, like a bad use of your time. And so I think that's a key trend that we're we're riding. But I think I think people are going to try this. I think, you know, we're constantly looking over our shoulder. We're constantly we know people are working on these same problems. We know people have the same vision for for the world. And you know, our goal is to assemble the absolute best people in the world to work on this problem. And my personal goal is that the people that are just as convicted that the world is going to look this way that, that I and we can bring them into the team and convince them that it's actually a better swing to come join and build this with us, and that it's actually a better risk-adjusted outcome for them than to go try to, to compete and do it on their own. And so, you know, for the people that are thinking about doing this, let's let's talk and let's figure out how you can can help build this rocket ship with us because we need we need as many smart people as possible and smart hustlers, people who who would potentially build their own thing that can come as, as a part of Omni and help us build this. Right. Uh, and so that's what I think about is how do we how do we aggregate all that talent that's thinking about these problems and and believes this future and build this together. You know, because, you know, we we firmly believe the world will look this way and someone is going to build this and we wake up every morning and I'm going to wake up every morning for the next decade or longer, making sure that we're the ones that, that get to do it. Crypto. Crypto. There's a lot of things that could make sense there. Sure. In terms of incentivizing people, decentralization. Like, where does crypto play within with an Omni. Are you guys ICOing? I mean, that's, that's the real question. <laughs> I don't think you can run a company in 2018 without thinking, oh snap, I'm standing in front of a giant tsunami of, of newness mm -hmm. uh, that I need to figure out how to surf in some capacity. I, don't, I think if you're running a company right now and you're not at least in some way thinking about a, a crypto strategy, in some, like, whether that's are we going to accept it for payments, are we going to build something against uh, you know, an Ethereum blockchain, are, are, are we going to ICO? You're gonna, you have to take these into consideration because you, you recognize that there's an overwhelming force coming towards you and it's myopic not to be a part of it. I actually think of it almost as like Netflix going from DVDs to streaming. It's like that was a massive decision. It's an unbelievable amount of gumption, but he saw the change, right? He's like, DVDs, great business, doing a bunch of money. We're like 20% of the postal media mail in the entire country of the United States. We're doing all this crazy stuff. But you know what? The wave is coming. Mail in general is decreasing. 
<laughs> video increasing online streaming, right? You, you got to take those shots. And I think this is a similar size. It's a bigger revolution than that because I think this is the internet at all. I think for Omni, we look at ourselves anyway as a bank ledger. I think that's kind of important to think about. Um, we think of our internal structure as, in my mind, if you have $300 in the bank account or you have a $300 bike in Omni, we're basically the same thing. We're holding $300 with a value for you. And if you're renting it out, you're basically receiving a dividend. Uh, we're receiving some piece of that as well for you holding it with us and, and allowing us to transact with your capital. It's an investment. I think over time, a lot more people will come to that realization as well. If we start adding things like trade, right? So suddenly a bike can become a lawnmower. What does that look like? You buy a bike with US dollars, it becomes, right. uh, it becomes a lawnmower. And that lawnmower gets paid out in Bitcoin or it gets paid out in, in you know, anything that you could think about, Litecoin, whatever you want to choose. We've now transacted across the same set of things. It's just bank ledgers talking to each other, reconciling who owns what. But that is the start of this sort of like, where do things fall on, these, on this crypto line? And I think we can become a pretty, pretty important source for both access to it and innovation around it. And, you know, when we have a platform, I would imagine people will start going pretty crazy on this idea of like assets being locked into a trust source. We become just a trusted node on a very large network. That's a different currency of exchange, but certainly a store of value. And those things become that. And that's a, that's where I'm looking right now is how do we, how do we, how do we get the opportunity of that? Who can we partner with? What can we build towards those things? Yeah. I think if you, if you think about what the what a lot of the core innovation around crypto and blockchain and the way that people are starting to build these things, you look at something silly like CryptoKitties that I actually think is interesting, even though it's silly on the surface. You know, Omni is very interesting because you had all the you have these physical items that are sort of impossible to move without these huge logistics costs, very difficult to like sort of catalog or organize or verify in any way. And we very much internally, and part of the reason why we invest so much in the way we process items and photograph them is because we very much view Omni as like ownership verification or access verification. And so, you know, long term, there's a lot of similarities between something like a blockchain technology and the way that Omni thinks about, you know, Omni being <clears throat> sort of ownership verification for the items that you own. And then perhaps you have a, a access to a block, another block of items via where you work or a subscription you've purchased. And then, you know, when you say, hey, I own these Yeezys and I want to sell these Yeezys, we can verify that you own those Yeezys. Maybe you get a loan against those Yeezys. Maybe you swap Yeezys with someone else and you both know that you actually own them. Maybe you get a discount on- To get a mortgage for those Yeezys. To get a mortgage on these Yeezys. Maybe you have maybe you have 30 pairs of Nike shoes. <laughs> this is interesting. When you have 30 pairs of Nike shoes, we verify that you own all 30 pairs of Nike shoes. And all of a sudden, Nike is super interested in figuring out how to talk to you, to market to you, to get you products. Because they know, hey, these are verified, real, authentic 30 pairs of Nikes that Eric verifies and owns. That doesn't exist right now. And so I think there's a lot of parallels. Um, we're going to be exploring a lot of things. But I think it's important to think about how you know, Omni, one of Omni's core values is sort of figuring out how long-term we we allow you to interact with atoms the way you can interact with bits right now. Right. And that's really what where I think these parallels come to. How about virtual reality? Because there is sort of a dystopian world in which people are like, I don't need stuff. It's all in my head. How do, how do you guys think about virtual reality? Or do you think about virtual reality? I'll tell you, I don't think about it every day. <laughs> um, I think we're a pretty long way off from I no longer right. want to use a surfboard in the real world. I simply want to surf every day in VR. I'm not saying that that's not a world we can't get to. I think Omni is a pretty scaled company at that point, and we're probably solving a myriad of other problems beyond just the physical use of an individual item by that point. For things that are interesting to me, and I think generally speaking, VR as a concept, VR specifically, right. uh, has not found a killer app. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't experience quality or interaction level yet that in any way replaces like sitting in a room with an actual friend. I think we're seeing some pretty interesting stuff on AR. I think right. we'll most likely have an AR killer app that could be using Omni before that. And I, it'll most likely be on the back end. It'll most likely be show me how these things could fit into my apartment that I own in, you know, I might buy from someone in Omni or how we can do 3D modeling and be a large resource for 3D models of everything people own or, you know, how do things fit more strategically into vehicles. So one of the things we're looking at now is if we took a 3D image of every single item that came into Omni, could we optimize density in our facilities better? Could we optimize routing for every single van to make sure they're, they're, they're you know, we're playing virtual AR, real-world translated tennis on every single vehicle that goes out to make sure it's got the most optimum amount of, of distribution potential at any given time. So I think you're going to see amazing stuff coming on that back end. I don't know if those will be as reflected in the consumer experience anytime soon, but it's, a, it's, it's another wave of very valuable tech that's going to drive a lot of innovation. And I just think it'll be behind the scenes first, and then over time we'll start to see things that get there. The first one I think someone will do will be a small app on top of platform, the Omni platform with art rentals mm. you know you can imagine a very simple world that no one really does right now which i don't i don't understand i mean i understand the challenges without omni and how it's so much easier with omni but paying a 30 dollars a month subscription or 10 dollars a month subscription or just ad hoc whenever you want it you know if you have a big space on your wall and you want to just flip through 500 different pieces of art that could be at your house in two hours and you could pay eight bucks and have it up for the month you're hosting a dinner party you want something different with the holidays whatever there's this whole world of like art aficionados that I'm not necessarily part of. But I do, I think there's something really interesting there where, you know, the first killer app for that could just be someone built something on a platform, take a picture, hold it up on your wall, and you can see all the different things nominated that you can put there. And I think those are sort of the small little initial inklings that we'll see. Something that I love about Omni is, you know, if you think about what is so special about sort of disruptive products, disruptive platforms, is one that they, you know, create new behaviors or incentivize new behaviors. Uber, like it's three times the whole taxi market. People said, oh, first it's, it's not you replace private cars or whatever. Uh, I think Omni, you, people are peer-to-peer renting, trading, sharing, to enable new behaviors and two, uh, creating economies on top of them. So I'm, I'm curious more on the economy side, like what types of entrepreneurs do you envision building on top of Omni? Like who's going to be a millionaire in Omni? Like what, what are they going to do? <laughs> Doug, I'll let you go first. You have it's a great day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm very excited for that day. So I think what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of sort of like there's items that you, when you need, you really need them, that people are willing to pay a higher daily rate, like Tom mentioned, that you can actually make a significant amount of money on. So, you know, there's, there's days where people are, or weeks where people are recouping the entire cost of like a space heater or an outdoor heater or like event chairs or things like that on like one weekly rental and they're making all their money back and then it's all profit from there. So I think the first things we'll see is people just sort of arbitraging or figuring out these pockets of items where, hey, if you need five outdoor heaters for an event, you really need those five outdoor heaters. And if you need them delivered that day, you're willing to pay a premium to get it and people will corner that market. What I'm most interested in is people that figure out how to launch their own small businesses on top of Omni. So the killer, the first killer thing that I think someone will do is like a tool rental company. So I think there's very few people in any urban market that need to own most power tools. Most people just need them when they need them. But couple craftsman drills. Couple craftsman drills. <laughs> but when you need them, generally you're either going to borrow it from someone and drive across town and go get it, or you're going to drive to Home Depot or Lowe's and you're going to pay 70 bucks for a drill that you're going to use twice in the next year. And so I'm super excited about hopefully some awesome young hustler who figures out that she or he can buy you know 20 sets of power tools, put them in Omni, brand their shop. And have the reputation of, hey, this is always going to be the highest quality. This is, these are great tools. 
and we have the best prices and you can get access to any of these tools through Omni. I think there's classes of items like that that people are going to make a lot of money on. In terms of who's going to be the first millionaire on Omni, I think what's interesting is that you can scale. Omni allows you to scale your businesses to new markets without ever even touching that market. And so, you know, you could have that that going in San Francisco and we could launch LA or New York or Philly or Boston or whenever, Phoenix. And you could just buy the same things, ship them there to our facility and open them up there. And you would have your entire, you would have all your reputation. We would pass along your ratings. Your reputation within the network would also follow you there. And you could actually have this amazing expansion opportunity to where now you have a power, you have a power tool rental company that operates in 25 markets without owning a single square footage of space, a single vehicle or a single employee in any of those markets because Omni handles everything for you. So I think that's, if I just say the first millionaire, that's probably, I think, someone who figures out how to tap onto every single sort of geo expansion when we launch new markets and just corners it with their existing reputation. I don't have a ton to add to that. I think that's great. I think one of the things I wouldn't be surprised if happens if that's not an Omni employee. Wow. One of my goals is that, like, yeah. if you, I want to build a culture, right, where this is a great place to work. You know you're working on a world-changing idea. You know you're pumping every day. But the only reason you want to leave is because you're seeing a missing opportunity on top of us that you know we're not going to seize because it's so far off in a roadmap or so conflicted for what our vision is. If we want to be relatively agnostic and you're sitting there every day looking at this data on power tools and you're sitting here like, I'm just going to open 10 markets. I don't know what they are, but they're open 10 markets in the next couple of years. What are those markets? I could corner this thing. And you start figuring that out. So I think there's a pretty interesting opportunity for that. One of the things we're going to do, though, to make it competitive is we're planning on releasing a lot of that data just out to people. Just start showing, just like Google has sort of zeitgeist, so you can mm-hmm. see trends, you can see what's trending, what searches are in. People are always figuring out different ads, different way to do things, how to market because of those trends. We're going to start releasing that stuff to you, so you'll be able to see searches, unfulfilled searches, searches that are fulfilled, how many, how much, what's the average price that these are being rented on. And you can start to look at these opportunities too. What's um, an example of something that people search for that might might surprise? The chairs thing just blows my mind. People yeah. want chairs. I always say in the room, just like, I guess everybody... Like everybody's got a butt, you know what I'm saying? Like everybody needs to sit. Yeah. And what we're our, our current thesis, and we've talked to a few people, chairs we can't keep chairs in. Like if you have a set of picnic type chairs, or even like relatively convenient like dinner side dinner table type chairs, mm-hmm. our theory right now is that everybody in San Francisco in a small apartment has four chairs. They put two chairs into Omni because they only had two people living in their apartment, and their plan was, hey, when I have people over, I'll have those two chairs brought back. Well, suddenly you're realizing that there's a whole group of people who had the same problem, but they want to have a wine night, or they want to have a movie night, or they want to have game night, and they need eight chairs. And now they're just like, where am I going to get eight chairs? Like, who's going to sit on the couch? What's going on? And, and the opportunity is, I go into Omni, and there's a person with six matched chairs, and like, great, bring those down. And suddenly this thing that we had what felt like an overabundance of becomes an obvious resource for a group of people who, who never even thought about renting a chair. Like, what individual on a day goes, like, uh, you know what, how much, who's ever rented a chair before? You rent them for parties. Right. But the idea of renting a chair for your home is, is, is almost would be absurd before that. Mm-hmm. And the idea of committing to owning new chairs that you're just going to have to store, it was also absurd. It's a, it's a completely missed delta for, like, an Amazon Prime Now thing, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, cool. You might say, I'm going to prime now uh, you know, an extra monitor because I have to do some spreadsheet work, right? That might be something you would actually think about. You're not going to be like, cool, I'm going to spend $400 on chairs that I'm going to have to put in a storage unit after tonight. Suddenly you can spend $40, have all of your friends over, have an amazing game of Cards Against Humanity, and it suddenly go away. So we never thought about that. It's interesting to see it. It's the least sexy answer I could possibly have, but from like a data dip 
interesting to me from a, like a business human nature behavior thing. It's like, oh, chairs, man. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got a book. Give me the chairs. Should we chat high frequency trading? Oh, because that might be the other, that might be the first millionaire. I'm going to let you go in, Captain High Frequency Trading. I love this. <laughs> so one of the things we think about a lot is, so Tom used a snowboard example. That's like a single anecdote of something that I think, so we think, we talk about that and we talk about, you know the story of the guy, woman, I don't know who it was that turned like a paperclip into a car or a house no. on Craigslist? No. Oh yeah, man. This is like 15, I don't know, 15 years ago? Yeah, it was like 2004. Like yeah. started with paperclip, it took what? I'll trade you a paperclip for a balloon. I'll change oh, this balloon for a can. I'll change this can of Coke for an anti nectar for a book. Right. I think it was like a thirty thousand dollars house. Like I think I think like it was a huge thing, really but it was like pretty amazing. Yeah. But it was like a year of work. And <laughs> basically every time it was like figuring out how to capture five to ten percent more value than you're getting and just do that over and over and over again until the numbers are big enough. And one of the things that I think is very interesting about Omni is once you create this sort of like totally verified network of things you create an api and a platform to be able to, to talk to those things take actions on them and you have pricing data on all of them if you you, you know you're going to have an influx of people looking to sell their snowboards in the summer you also know that the roi on those snowboards the sort of like ltv to you might be higher on rentals than selling and so you pick up a, a huge number of snowboards in in june and you hold those till, say, November, and then you start renting them out, and you make all your money back in three months. And what's more interesting is if you were able to basically create a ton of liquidity in the market by constantly fulfilling trade, you knew that there was open barters, and you know Omni might not initially you know, connect the fact that I want to trade my paddleboard for a surfboard, Tom wants to trade his surfboard for a pair of Yeezys, and you want to trade your pair of Yeezys for a paddleboard, and how we could do a three-way trade. But someone could create this high-frequency trading network that actually just fulfilled all these orders in real time, added liquidity into the market where it needed to, took it out when it could, and essentially create a network of trading on top of Omni that they ran that could do buying, selling, renting, uh, and trading that, that A, was great for Omni members because it created all this liquidity and you're able to get cash out, get, get the items that you want, but then also creates, I think, a huge surplus of value because they're able to you know, just very quickly fulfill bid and ask across the network. So we'll see if or when that happens, but that might be a strong secondary contender right. to the first millionaire in addition to the person that figures out how to sort of nail all of our geo expansion and corner those markets. I want to zoom out a bit on the future of storage and, and Omni and zoom into your guys' personal, uh, you guys as people, because you're both super fascinating and, and I know all the dirt about you guys. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tom, wow. Uh, you started out as an audio engineer yeah. making mixtapes. You know, wow. working with Rick Ross. None of that happened. And uh, some of that happened. The first two things. Yeah. <laughs> the Rick Ross thing. I don't think I ever made a tape. But, I, you know, when we talk about, you, you talk about three different types of entrepreneurs. Yeah. I think people would be surprised to know that someone running a company like this yeah. was, you know, once making underground real hip hop. Yeah. So, talk about that. Oh, man. I don't know. How, how, how do you connect the dots so, from there to here? So, I'll throw out one thing. I'm, I'm of the general thesis that everything is just selling t-shirts basically like you're you have to establish a market you have to come up with something that people it's like want. a hip-hop fortune cookie well. right right and it's yeah. like and and i think if you're if we go back to my initial thesis on the sort of the three different paths the three different types of people right yeah. the, the the sort of the hustler the business diagnosis and the uh fast follow type person right the the hustler person if you meet people like me or if that's what I self I self identify as a hustler. Um, thanks guys. Um, if you look at those different things, you will find, and I've, I've tried this a bunch that in their past, you will find out that they 
were club promoters, right. or they sold T-shirts, or they did something where they like tried to start a record label. They they've been doing some sort of like side hustle thing, trying to turn a side hustle into a real job. This is my favorite interview question for like non technical candidates: is how'd you make your first hundred dollars? And and what answer are you looking for? I'm looking for in third grade. I sold candy. I yeah. took baseball cards. I sold cokes for five cents cheaper than the Coke machine. Coca Colas. Coca Colas. <laughs> uh, yes. But this is like exactly Tom's point. It's like right. there's you find this thread with almost all these amazing candidates or founders, and almost it's amazing how many people have that story. And so for me to literally, you know, if Delk was interviewing me and asked me that question, my first job wasn't audio engineering. It wasn't trying to start a record label. It was I was selling snap bracelets in third grade when the little snap bracelets were popping off and I got my mom to be my first angel investor and she bought a hundred and I was selling them for a dollar each. And then you could, for a dollar 20, I partnered with this kid who could do bubble letters <laughs> and he would write your name. Wow. So he would get 20 cents at, straight for him, straight profit for him. He would get 20 cents. I would make it. I'd pay my mom back the, the, the it was like 25 bucks for it. And I made like 75 bucks and mm-hmm. I, I run the whole thing. Similar to the baseball card stuff, I figured out there was an arbitrage opportunity on the nine sleeve holders. <laughs> if you would cut them into nine individuals, right. you could buy a nine sleeve holder for 50 cents, but you could sell individual card holders for 10 cents. So you had a double rate if you were, if you were willing to sit there with an X-Acto knife and turn a nine into a, a nine holder a binder into a one. So you know, I think it's innate if that's what you're looking to do. And I do think one of the interesting parts is that I don't think people... You're always looking to turn that into the real thing. And I think that's something that's lost a lot of time. I think people look at, at guys who start businesses like that and make those attempts, not, not necessarily yeah. playing card holders, but right. you know, T-shirts, right. whatever. It's not an attempt to be illegitimate. It's not an attempt to do a side hustle because like, they want to turn that into their real job. They want to, there's a part of their creative spark that isn't being fulfilled, but they're, they're fueled by the energy of the business part that's a part of it, that's a part of themselves. And for me, you know, the music thing was amazing. I, I loved the music part. I think I think when I even look back, I I love music in a way that I'm not sure it should ever be how I make my money, <laughs> right? I'd love to see success in tech and logistics that we're at now and then build a music studio that people can use for free and run it at a loss because I'd be so passionate about just hanging out again and not having to think about how does this pay the bills, right? So, you know, that path of, of sort of those things when you see them across there if I told the whole story, it would feel almost like it would make sense. But, you know, the disjointed nature of like you did this and now you do that. To me, it's, you know, even without knowing the full path, the link there is, you know, you saw something interesting. You thought you, you thought you could, you know, build something around it and you didn't care whether you had acumen or not. Right. And so, you know, for the audio thing, uh, who knew if I could ever record right. a band? I, I had the opportunity to do some school stuff around it. But most of my learning how to do any music recording was like 3 a.m. doing like punk rock bands right. in D.C. Mm-hmm. and just learning how all the buttons worked. And that's really similar to saying, hey, I've never run a logistics company, but, you know, I can work till 3 a.m. and learn how to, you know, right. write an algorithm that moves a, a van or figure out how to take photos of things. Uh, I think the, the unifying thread between any job I've had or any job or any entrepreneur on that hustler scale that's looking to do something is that, like, you're not afraid of the challenge of figuring out, uh, like, you know, how to seize it. And you're willing to live a, either a high risk or at least a, a high attempt, high, like, high attempt, low hit ratio swing for a big, a big opportunity and a big prize. But, uh, and that's how I see this. But everything's like selling t-shirts. I love that. But some t-shirts are worth more than other t-shirts or more people yeah. than other t-shirts. Yeah, but if so, you ask those people, their first t-shirts weren't worth that much. Right. Exactly. So I guess my question is, to people who were making mixtapes with you back then or, yeah. or to people making mixtapes now, 
what would your advice be in terms of, I know some people just want to make it to go, but some people just don't know like which, which ponds to go into. What would you tell them in terms of where to be making t-shirts? <laughs> or like, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, is it just move here or is it just, Oh, well I wouldn't move to San Francisco. I'll sell them t-shirts. Um, but I do think there's something about, there's something about moving literally the physical act of moving when, when uh, my previous company, not the record label, but the previous company right before this, uh, we were doing uh, iPhone apps, right? And we were doing them in DC and I had two co-founders of that company and we were working really hard on this stuff. And we just kind of realized that, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to get, we weren't going to know if we were really good in DC. And that's nothing to do with DC as a scene or a culture or anything. It's just like, we knew the best in what we were doing were in San Francisco Bay Area. And if we were going to ever find out if we were actually really good, we needed to act, we need to do a physical act and go out there. I wanted, I needed to play in the majors. I needed to know that I was swinging against the best every time to verify if it was worth my time. Because if I got out there and, I, and the curve was so far, if you get out there and you're like, I'm so far from where, from where I need to be, either you have two options. You can figure out how you catch that curve, how you put in time, energy, effort, education, spend, and make yourself there. Or you say, you know what? I need to figure out what's the thing that I'm a little closer to the, mm. a little closer to the, <laughs> to the talent pool here and seize that because now I can surpass. I can be the new bar. And for me, I felt like when I got here, I wasn't so far off the curve. We definitely did not show up and be like, oh, we're, you know, because I clearly didn't build the app that did it then. Maybe I have now, but in that first run. And, you know, when you look at that, maybe if you're doing music and you have two sides, if you were doing the music side, right, you can say, I'm going to be the biggest fish in a small pond. And I'm going to be the most famous guy in this area that doesn't have a thriving music scene. And you might you might get discovered, but you're mostly waiting on someone from a larger right. area to find you. Or you can say, you know what, I'm going to go find out if I'm the best in the hardest markets. I'm going to New York. I'm going to Miami. I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to L.A. I'm going to you know Memphis. I'm going to Nashville. And I'm going to, I'm going to learn. And either I'm going to learn, stick it out, and get there, or I'm going to figure out, you know, maybe I should be a dancer. Right. You might, <laughs> you might find out that what you love about music or what you love about dancing can also – you might love the same things – in technology or in something exactly. else. You, yeah. the, I, I would say the number one thing to keep in mind is that I'm a big believer in the path. Uh, this idea that you are on a path that you are in somewhat control of, right? There's a free will nature there and you are the opportunity. Anytime you are going after an opportunity and you're sincerely doing it, you're going to be open to so many other opportunities because your mind is just in this place where you're listening. You're, you're seeing and discovering these different things. That maybe it isn't the one that you set out for, but more than likely you're going to run into someone else or someone's going to notice something in you that you don't even see. And they're going to throw out another opportunity that is actually more aligned with where your future success comes from. And as long as you're, as long as you're pushing down it in a way that is like, I'm going to get somewhere. I'm not going to stop. So to me, the thing is never, you know, you've got to be like a, like a shark. And I don't mean that in the shark tank way. I don't mean that in the, you have to be an aggressive person who takes out your enemies. I mean it in the, you never stop swimming. Like you got to keep the water circulating over the gills. And at some point you're going to find more fish. And at some point you're going to find calmer and warmer and better seas. And as long as you don't stop dead, you keep going, you're going to get something out of it. And like energy gives back what energy gives out. So I love that. You know, keep swimming. I love that. Delk. Tell me what it's like, this is very new for you right now, to be a relatively young executive COO who's also a new father. Yeah. Uh, a young Ben Harwitz, if you will. Wow. Strong. Uh, one anecdote that I think is interesting that perfectly ties into what Tom was just saying is when the first time I actually came by Omni, so Tom and I knew each other for, I think, a while before this. First time I actually came by Omni and saw it, I was, we were hanging out to reference check an investor 
for a company I was starting and I was chatting with Tom because they're also an investor in Omni and I was asking for his experience working with them because I was raising a seed round to, and they were going to be like the lead investor. And I ended up not starting that company. Do you remember this? And we were going to maybe start it together. Were we? Maybe. I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that was Eric saying, don't write me out of history, bro. <laughs> maybe. And, maybe. <laughs> and then at the end of that conversation, yeah. you said something like, by the way, you know, if you ever want to chat about like what I'm doing here, I think it's, there's a big swing. And that was like the first time that I actually saw the inner workings of like the facility and how things were working. And that was the first time I thought maybe, maybe the next path is not what I was going to do, which was at Hamid actually meeting for me to start, I was starting my own company. I was about to raise two and a half million bucks, start this whole thing. And yeah, I remember, actually, man. That actually is what kicked. <laughs> uh, That's why you remember the docs you signed. And that actually is what basically kickstarted this journey for me. Yeah. Uh, that was probably three years ago now when I was starting that company or almost starting that company. But it's just interesting how exactly what he was talking about for his own path and like the thing you were pursuing might not actually be the thing you end up doing right. is exactly how uh, a lot of the story of how we started working together. So I think that's interesting. Back to your question. Glad, glad I threw that shot. Gotta shoot your shot, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Glad I did. <laughs> uh, to answer your question, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't think I think about the like young executive thing at all no father 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 uh, <laughs> he thinks about that he i think that. about that very often i think because so, you don't you don't see young fathers in that you know what I mean? yeah so i think something i would say it's that's been the single most motivating moment of my life was when we had our son it's like very difficult for me to talk about it without getting emotional because it was so such a profound experience of bringing so many things into focus and the the fulfillment you feel when you hold your child and you you feel this like for me, at least, I felt this incredible desire to build a better world for him, to build a legacy for him, to make his last name matter. And mm. when you felt, when I felt that what I was doing right now was exactly the thing to best do that, mm. is maybe the best feeling in the entire world. You don't, I think probably some people feel that and go, crap, I gotta, I need to change, I need to go do something different, I need to like right. make some changes. But to feel like you are already running down the path with my wife and I as, as a family, me professionally, that perfectly aligns with that and feeling like that moment did nothing but solidify what you're working on is the greatest feeling in the world. And I don't know, Tom might be able to test that. Coming back from paternity leave, I was probably the most motivated that I've ever been at Omni. And I think, and he still is. He's still pumping. Yeah. And I think <laughs> the focus that that gives you, you know, when you when you come home at night and, and hold your child, when you wake up in the morning, when you're up at 3 a.m. feeding him, it just puts a lot of things in, into perspective. And I understand why a lot of people choose to have kids much later, um, and I totally respect that decision. But I do think that there is something about, you know, when you're still young in your career, when you still, you know, you haven't made it, uh, you're still hustling, you're still you're still on the journey. There's something profound about having them be part of that journey and not something that, that you, you know, that comes after the journey's over, or not over, but like you've, you've, after you've had the first mountaintop or whatever, we're very much still on our way. And so, um, you know, I'm super, super grateful that, that, and super thankful that we made the decision to have kids uh, when we did. And it's just, it's been, been an unbelievable experience. And I would say unbelievable to work somewhere that is so supportive of people having kids, family leave policies. You know, I think that's, that's something that's very embedded within our DNA and something that I think creates an unbelievably inclusive place to work because people feel supported. And, you know, when, when a CEO is on paternity leave for multiple weeks, when, when people see that happen, when packages of Pampers are getting delivered to the office, you know, from Amazon, I think people, it, it just creates a, a really special place to work. It's powerful, guys. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, guys you for, Eric. Thanks for having us. We're building something incredible, and I'm honored to, you know, just have a very small 
small part in it. 